The public's interest in true crime has spawned a massive industry. Detailed information on every conceivable high-profile offense ever committed is so ubiquitous and easily within our grasp, it's difficult to remember a time when it wasn't so readily available. In our adult lives, we've consumed a staggering number of tales of some of the ugliest crimes ever committed. The best and most responsible documentarians, authors, and now podcasters who gather and provide this information to us in the right way and for the right reasons provide a valuable public service. But we're all aware that finding the responsible sources can be difficult, because those whose motives are less than pure greatly outnumber the ones with standards. This experience was first set in the early 20th century, when the public was initially made aware of what felt like a particularly heinous crime. On September 9, 1921, actress Virginia Rapp died in a San Francisco hospital after her bladder ruptured. Four days prior to her death, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, at the time one of Hollywood's most recognizable stars, had been at a weekend-long party with Rapp and others, and after a police investigation, Arbuckle was accused of Rapp's rape and murder. While this was far from the first time a high-profile criminal case was in the public interest, the public's ability to examine the crime and follow the legal process in depth with such immediate accessibility was still novel. Also new was a Hollywood celebrity being tried by the media. In a case that involved the possible sexual assault and eventual death of a young woman, particularly in a time when men who committed crimes of this kind often went unpunished, radio and newspapers, with their newfound access and wide-reaching platform, were obligated to report on the case thoughtfully. What transpired instead was reckless tabloid coverage with no regard for the truth. The gist of the reporting was that Arbuckle was most definitely guilty of the attack, and the account was presented with hearsay and fabrication with no regard for authenticity. The seriousness of a possible act of violence against a woman was also neglected, with the accounts focusing on salaciousness and Arbuckle's perversity. Leading up to and during the trials, William Randolph Hearst's papers took a particularly galling stand against Arbuckle, with Hearst proudly boasting that the Arbuckle scandal, quote, sold more newspapers than the sinking of the Lusitania, unquote. According to Hearst's San Francisco Examiner, Arbuckle ruptured Rapp's bladder during his attack, which eventually killed her. The Examiner also ran a tasteless cartoon featuring a drunken Arbuckle in the middle of a spider web surrounded by captive women, and printed countless rumors that Arbuckle was in general a sexual deviant and sadistic predator. Even the public support of well-loved fellow actors Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin was unconvincing, as the Hearst paper's insatiable reporting was always louder and much more frequent. It should be said that we don't know if Arbuckle committed the rape or the murder. What we'll touch on in a minute will show why we're even talking about this, but the point in discussing it now isn't to do with Arbuckle's guilt or innocence, which only he knows for sure. It's important to note that the media in this case didn't so much take Virginia Rapp's side as it did seize on an opportunity to paint a colorful but base picture of something truly ugly, with an immensely famous movie star as its main character. While they couldn't have known what their detestable coverage of the case would indirectly lead to, it's of course unlikely they would have cared anyway. For the record, Arbuckle was tried three different times. He testified in his own defense at the first trial, and the jury voted 10-2 in favor of acquittal. 
At a second trial, the jury was deadlocked. At the third trial that began in March of 1922, the now nearly broke Arbuckle agreed to let his attorneys employ a far less honorable legal strategy, in which they paraded character witnesses who testified about Rapp's promiscuity. Finally, on April 12, 1922, the jury at this third trial deliberated for roughly five minutes and voted to unanimously acquit. In a case involving a public figure, the media scandalized the crime instead of attempting to find the truth or treat it with the gravity it deserved. Hearst's comments on the matter in the ensuing years showed that his only interest was increasing circulation of his already flourishing newspapers, and the best way to make that happen was to focus on the most lurid aspects of the case, training the American public early on to take a leering look at horrific crime. The coverage also taught them to become mistrustful of artists, while the rest of that day's paper would lionize powerful businessmen and populist politicians. The public's reaction to Arbuckle's downfall was one of loathing. The Arbuckle affair is the most infamous example of an early Hollywood disgrace, but American disgust with film industry luminaries was also informed by other objectionable events that happened around the same time, breathlessly reported on by the same media. The California State Board of Pharmacy identified 500 Hollywood personalities as drug addicts, including actress Olive Thomas, who died of an overdose in 1920 while honeymooning with the brother of Mary Pickford. Details about the murder of director William Desmond Taylor included gay sex and a drug deal gone wrong. Divorces were also a target of scorn, as Mary Pickford divorced Owen Moore to marry Douglas Fairbanks. Gloria Swanson divorced her husband shortly after the birth of their child, and Charlie Chaplin, only recently divorced from Mildred Harris, was spotted, quote, cavorting nude with a young actress on Catalina Island, unquote. The byproduct of these scandals, in particular Arbuckles, which relied almost entirely on sensationalized accounts by an increasingly powerful media that thrived on misinformation, would help lay the foundation that led to major changes in the still barely 20-year-old film industry. With the hedonistic behavior of movie stars, combined with what were deemed increasingly raunchy films, major studios began facing pressure from conservative activist groups, politicians, and religious leaders. In the wake of the mounting pressure, the industry began to fear the possibility of censorship. And while it hadn't yet been officially legislated at the federal level, individual states began crafting policy that allowed censorship with no documentation of the strictures being enforced. These efforts to censor movies were already well underway even before the Arbuckle scandal. In the landmark 1915 Supreme Court case of Mutual Film Corporation versus Industrial Commission of Ohio, the court unanimously found for Ohio's government-appointed Board of Censors resulting in a legal precedent which said that First Amendment law did not extend to motion pictures. By 1921, other state governments followed Ohio's example and set up localized film censorship boards. Studios determined that if this continued, they would need not only to adhere to state laws, 
but different cuts of movies would need to be distributed depending on the jurisdiction. In fear of having to face possibly hundreds of inscrutable, jurisdiction-specific censorship boards across the country, the industry decided to try and police itself in the form of the production code. Today, we know the production code as the Hayes Code, named after Will Hayes, the Postmaster General from the cabinet of Warren G. Harding. A former chairman of the Republican National Committee in 1922, Irving Thalberg of MGM, Saul Wurzel of Fox, and E.H. Allen of Paramount appointed Hayes president of the newly formed Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, a precursor to the MPAA, or MPA as it's known today, a position he would hold from 1922 to 1945. Will Hayes was a career politician and prominent Presbyterian elder who the studio heads first became acquainted with in 1919 when he met with them to discuss strategies on integrating filmmaking into Harding's presidential campaign. The moguls felt that with Hayes' talent for public relations, along with his Republican and pro-business connections, he was an ideal conservative face for an industry reeling from recent scandals. However, Hayes' appointment did not lead to immediate change, and his first five years in office focused mainly on logistics planning and initiatives from his time as Postmaster General that he hoped he could implement for the film industry. In 1927, more deliberate efforts began, as Hayes recommended the studios form a censorship board, and Thalberg, Wurzel, and Allen collaborated on the Don'ts and Be Carefuls list, or DBCL, a series of regulations based on content-based feedback they'd received from local government censorship organizations. While the DBCL was not formally administered when it was first created, many of its tenets would form the basis for the actual Hayes Code that would later be officially enforced. In a resolution passed on June 29, 1927, Hayes and the moguls forming the MPA codified their DBCL list into an official document. Specifically, the MPA resolved, quote, that those things which are included in the following list shall not appear in pictures produced by the members of this association, irrespective of the manner in which they are treated, unquote. The 11 don'ts included on the list were as follows. One, pointed profanity by either title or lip. This includes the words God, Lord, Jesus, Christ, unless they be used reverently in connection with proper religious ceremonies, hell, SOB, damn, God, or every other profane and vulgar expression, however it may be spelled. Two, any licentious or suggestive nudity, in fact or in silhouette, and any lecherous or licentious notice thereof by other characters in the picture. Three, the illegal traffic in drugs. Four, any inference of sex perversion. Five, white slavery. Six, miscegenation. Seven, sex hygiene and venereal diseases. Eight, scenes of actual childbirth, in fact or in silhouette. Nine, children's sex organs. 10, ridicule of the clergy. 11, willful offense to any nation, race, or creed. Be it further resolved that special care be exercised in the manner in which the following subjects are treated, to the end that vulgarity and suggestiveness may be eliminated and that good taste may be emphasized. The 25 be carefuls included on the list were as follows. 1. The use of the flag. 
Two, international relations. Avoid picturizing in an unfavorable light another country's religion, history, institutions, prominent people, and citizenry. Three, arson. Four, the use of firearms. Five, theft, robbery, safe cracking, and dynamiting of trains, mines, buildings, etc. Having in mind the effect which a too detailed description of these may have upon the moron. Six, brutality and possible gruesomeness. 7. Technique of committing murder by whatever method. 8. Methods of smuggling. 9. Third-degree methods. 10. Actual hangings or electrocutions as legal punishment for crime. 11. Sympathy for criminals. 12. Attitude toward public characters and institutions. 13. Sedition. 14. Apparent cruelty to children and animals. 15. Branding of people or animals. 16. The sale of women or of a woman selling her virtue. 17. Rape or attempted rape. 18. First night scenes. 19. Man and woman in bed together. 20. Deliberate seduction of girls. 21. The institution of marriage. 22. Surgical operations. 23. The use of drugs. 24. Titles or scenes having to do with law enforcement or law enforcing officers. 25. Excessive or lustful kissing, particularly when one character or the other is a heavy. After this extensive don'ts and be carefuls list was created, which provided a semi-specific guide to scenarios for which filmmakers needed to tread lightly, Thalberg further attempted to enact an official production code by meeting with Catholic leaders who helped to formalize it. He then hired Jason Joy and James Wingate to oversee enforcement of the code. Over the next few years as the silent era ended, Joy and Wingate oversaw film production at the major studios. However, the number of films produced in America overwhelmed their small staff, and the censors still didn't have full authority to demand cuts, so many movies still contained scenes and plots that the code was created to prevent. Joy and Wingate were widely perceived as ineffectual figureheads by many in the industry. Filmmakers, along with industry papers like Variety and The Hollywood Reporter, openly defied the code, while the studios who had promised the clergy and politicians they'd enforce it looked the other way because ticket sales were high. Films like Cecil B. DeMille's Sign of the Cross and the Mae West penned She Done Him Wrong and I'm No Angel brazenly flouted the code's strictures, owing mostly to Joy's and Wingate's lack of real authority. But by 1934, the Catholic Legion of Decency was founded, and their influence, along with other religious groups, pressured the studios more strongly with threats of organizing boycotts and began lobbying for government censorship of movies. The Legion's core mission was to mobilize God-fearing moviegoers to patronize only films that did not offend decency or Christian morality. When the Legion denounced a film, the intent was to affect the box office take, and once the Legion began their campaign in earnest, the threat of lost revenue forced the studios to relent and begin to more seriously enforce the code. The studios caving into pressure from the Christian right, allowing a comparatively small but vocal group to prevent progress from being made, set the tone for nearly the next 100 years in America. Feeling Oh, my God.
July 1934, an MPA-backed organization called the Production Code Administration, or PCA, was established. This new arm of the MPA would be fully staffed and for the first time had the backing of the major studios. Will Hayes hired former journalist and prominent Catholic Joseph Breen to manage the organization, whose mission was to issue certificates of approval to films after reviewing the film's content. Under the newly enforced guidelines, no film could be exhibited in America without a certificate. Breen's staff was given authority to censor anything it deemed objectionable, resulting in filmmakers being forced to recut or, in many cases, rewrite their films. Joseph Breen worked as a newspaper reporter for many years, and he was discovered by Hayes when Breen headed the Eucharistic Congress in Chicago, a gathering that attempted to educate non-Catholics on Catholic culture and bring the religion more into the mainstream. Hayes admired Breen's tenacity, and the authority extended to Breen allowed him to influence and shape public thinking for nearly 20 years. That anyone is given unquestioned dominion over artists of any kind is egregious enough, but Breen seemed to hold certain other beliefs that makes his appointment a true outrage, and unfortunately, not at all a surprise. Shortly before his appointment to head the PCA, Breen wrote a letter to his friend Reverend Wilfred Parsons. In it, he stated about the Hollywood moguls, quote, Those Jews seem to think of nothing but making money and sexual indulgence. People whose daily morals would not be tolerated in the toilet of a pest house hold the good jobs out here and wax fat on it. 95% of these folks are of an Eastern European lineage. They are probably the scum of the earth, unquote. Such raging anti-Semitic statements made in private are in direct conflict with his public alignment with the anti-Nazi League for the Defense of Democracy. He also expressed public praise for Reverend Joseph Mahdi's Why Are the Jews Persecuted, a scholarly pamphlet attacking anti-Semitism. Why did Breen publicly support works and organizations that opposed prejudice while he privately engaged in it? The most pessimistic answer would be that his public statements and alliances were only pretense, given that his private thoughts show the opposite. Breen's words and some of his other actions while he was in charge lend credibility to the idea that what he was obviously comfortable saying to friends revealed much more about who he truly was than any public pronouncement. One of the be-carefuls that made it into the newly enforced production code was one concerning international relations. Quote, The history, institutions, prominent people, and citizenry of all nations shall be represented fairly. Unquote. The statement was structured as such so that a censor could use it to ban any critical look at a foreign country. Breen read every script before it went into production, and he used the fairness justification to limit or kill almost any film that touched on Nazi Germany, which explains why Charlie Chaplin's screenplay for The Great Dictator employs a fictional European nation with a Germanic gibberish spoken language to skewer Hitler. In addition to demanding language and scenes be cut from films, Breen could spike an entire project. For these reasons, he was as powerful as anyone in the country at the time in shaping American discourse. The reason we've spent the last few minutes discussing the thoughts and actions of Joseph Breen instead of the code itself is because it's essential to understand what an affront it is that a job with this much power and authority was given to this kind of person. It would be easy to dismiss his appointment as a product of a more ignorant time, 
But when you consider how often it still happens today, in every area of business or government, you realize how far we still haven't come. I want all of y'all to know, fine top boogie woogie. I want everybody to dance them just like I tell you. And when I say hold yourself, I want all of you to get ready to stop. And when I say stop, don't move. And when I say get it, I want all of y'all to do a boogie woogie. Hold it now. Stop. Boogie woogie. That's what I'm talking about. Once the code was implemented with the full power of the Breen office in 1934, it stayed officially in effect for movies released by major studios from 1934 to 1968. That the golden age of Hollywood took place during these years highlights not only the power and popularity of the medium, but the perseverance of the artist to deliver films of such quality while working within the strictures of the code. Some of the most recognizable names in movie history began work around this time and that they achieved what they did while working under such a ludicrous system is still stunning. You have our word that this won't turn into a four-hour show. But just like we did with the don'ts and be carefuls list, it's important that we break down some of the 20 pages of the code as thoroughly as possible so that we understand what filmmakers were up against. The code is also an important historical document that deserves this kind of review, particularly if we're going to criticize it. It begins with an extended capitalist forward and preamble extolling the virtues of self-regulation, which is deemed essential to our continued freedom in business and enterprise. It then reminds the reader that with such freedom comes moral, social, and economic responsibility. This consideration of the importance of righteousness in a society would be admirable if it weren't followed by further indoctrination on the importance of businesses being able to police themselves without taxpayer-funded oversight. A film must follow three general principles. 1. No picture shall be produced which will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Hence, the sympathy of the audience shall never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. 2. Correct standards of life, subject only to the requirements of drama and entertainment, shall be presented. 3. Law, natural or human, shall not be ridiculed, nor shall sympathy be created for its violation. Even this early into our review, we notice the perversity of these rules. Depicting a generally, quote, correct standard of life, unquote, is almost self-consciously vague. And if a law can't ever be ridiculed, nor sympathy be created for its violation, that would mean that law and justice are one and the same, and that the police and the judiciary are always correct. Any citizen living in 1934 or 2023 knows this is untrue. Oh, my God.
As page seven deals with sex, it deserves special analysis and consideration. In keeping with the earlier stricture of correct standards of life, quote, the sanctity of the institution of marriage and the home shall be upheld. Pictures shall not infer that low forms of sex relationship are the accepted or common thing, unquote. If adultery or illicit sex are necessary for the plot of the film, not only can such a thing not be explicitly depicted, but it can also never be, quote, presented attractively, unquote. The code later states that when dealing with scenes of passion, it should be, quote, treated in such manner as not to stimulate the lower and baser emotions, unquote. The code forbids the portrayal of white slavery, which we came to know as sexual slavery, as well as miscegenation, which prevented any representation of relationships between people of different races. This rule is particularly hateful, especially considering again that earlier business about a, quote, correct standard of life, unquote. While there were most definitely far fewer interracial American couples in 1934, to outlaw even the acknowledgement of their existence still has the power to outrage. While targeting people who love each other but are of different ethnicities is bad enough, quote, scenes of actual childbirth, in fact or in silhouette, are never to be presented, unquote. So while we couldn't discuss or show in a real way how a human life is created, the Code's founders feared women so much that filmmakers also had no right to even detail how a human life begins. While page 8 bans the use of profanity, it doesn't go into detail about the most oft-used bad words. Instead, it features a run-on sentence full of semicolons disallowing the use of mostly esoteric and G-rated Little Rascal-style swearing. It won't surprise you to learn that the words God, Lord, Jesus, and Christ are off-limits unless kept holy. In a ceremonial offhand nod to acknowledge racism, a short list of prohibited slurs against specifically Chinese, French, Italian, Jewish, white, black, and Latin people are included. If you were unlucky enough to be part of a race the code doesn't acknowledge in its forbidden epithets, you are apparently fair game. Page 9 includes another ambiguous rule that likely shaped portrayals of marriage in both film and television for decades. The rule stated simply that, quote, the treatment of bedrooms must be governed by good taste and delicacy, unquote. Originally included in the Be Careful's list as, quote, man and woman in bed together, unquote, separate beds for married couples normalized for the American public the idea that sex, even the sanctified variety that was part of a proper Christian life, could not even be recognized as a possibility. On page 12, we find ourselves unexpectedly siding with the authors of the code as they make an admirably forceful declaration about the humane treatment and handling of animals on a movie set, demanding that a representative from the Humane Society be present. This advocacy for creatures with no voice marks the first human moment of the document. And you're still almost with them as page 13 deals with a pronouncement about the vital importance of entertainment and art in a society and its value in, quote, rebuilding the bodies and souls of human beings, unquote. All propaganda is created to influence. So when it's this well written, you can see how easily it could have convinced citizens that the censors had the best interest of the nation in mind. But it wouldn't be the code without the overpowering need to control what people see and hear. So while acknowledging that creative pursuits fill an essential role for people, it remains the duty of filmmakers and exhibitors to create morally upstanding pictures. Pages 14 and 15 continues this assertion with additional moralizing, 
declaring that people from all social classes attend motion pictures, and because film is a visual medium, the same creative freedom the written word takes advantage of cannot be extended to filmmakers. This would almost make logical sense even today, if not for the earlier and later regulations referenced in the code that often prevents a film from depicting anything resembling real life. When a film must ensure that, quote, right standards are consistently represented, build character, develop right ideals, inculcate principles in attractive story form, unquote, illustration of universal truth is difficult to achieve. Finally, page 17 begins to outline additional governance of the depiction of sex. While magnanimously acknowledging that passion exists in human beings, the code makes clear that funny business has no place in motion pictures. Quote, impure love must never be presented as attractive and beautiful, unquote. Nor should it, quote, be presented in a way as to arouse passion or morbid curiosity on the part of the audience, unquote. The code's stance on nudity would be hilarious were it not part of a document regarded as sacrosanct for nearly four decades. Quote, the fact that the nude or semi-nude body may be beautiful does not make its use in films moral. For in addition to its beauty, the effect of the nude or semi-nude body on the normal individual must be taken into consideration, unquote. We of course encourage everyone to find the code and fully read it, because it's not just an archaic collection of old-timey rules our society has moved on from. It's a document that governed film production and through its influence helped create a culture based entirely on a sanitized, make-believe way of life. Even if movies aren't beholden to it anymore, that doesn't mean we don't still have policymakers in prominent positions who would jam its values into every aspect of modern life if they could get away with it. And as well known as it is, its effect on American culture is often still underestimated. As we referenced earlier, classic Hollywood as we know it emerged from this era of oppressive censorship. In an atmosphere that vigorously worked against artistic freedom, some of the greatest movies in Hollywood history were created. While the Breen office created impossible working conditions, the best films from the Code era still showed extensive technical achievement, pioneering writing and storytelling, and sometimes serious examination of social issues. Though they were made roughly 80 years ago, films made in the middle of the Code era like Citizen Kane, The Grapes of Wrath, Gentlemen's Agreement, and All the King's Men are still relevant to modern culture. What also emerged during the Code era was cleverness on the part of filmmakers who knew that even though the Breen office would scrutinize every detail of their movie, the censors didn't always have a grasp on nuance. Resigned to their circumstances, KG writers and directors often seemed to embrace the challenge of working under the Code's regulation, and consequently films occasionally depicted subversive subject matter that went unnoticed by all but the most discerning audience members. Alfred Hitchcock's 1948 film Rope was based on an English play called Rope's End, which itself came from the real-life case of Leopold and Loeb. Rope stars Farley Granger and John Dahl, and while at no time is it specifically referenced by the characters that they're a same-sex couple, it's obvious to anyone paying attention beyond a surface level. If there remained any doubt about the gay subtext of the film, Rope's screenwriter, Arthur Lawrence, confirmed audience suspicion when he was interviewed by Vito Russo for Russo's 1981 book, The Celluloid Closet. According to Lawrence, he thought the Breen office was onto them, until he realized they didn't even understand their own concerns. 
When Lawrence and producer Sidney Bernstein inserted inconsequential dialogue from the original play into the script, the censors refused to give the certificate of approval. When Lawrence reviewed the censors' notes, he found that they had circled variations of the phrase, Dear Boy. Realizing removal of the fastidious phrasing was enough for a Breen office that couldn't recognize subtlety, Lawrence did so in order to obtain the certificate and secure the film's release. Similar ground in which nuanced gay characters or plot lines got by the censors could also be seen in films like The Maltese Falcon, The Lost Weekend, Red River, All About Eve, and countless others. The filmmakers and a select group of moviegoers spoke a secret language that went undetected by Breen's staff, who could only ferret out the most obvious offenses. The studio's decision to create their own in-house watchdog agency had already worked against them for artistic reasons, but after World War II, it became increasingly clear that it would affect them fiscally as well. The popularity of television now allowed people to enjoy visual entertainment without leaving their houses. TV operated under similarly restrictive censorship guidelines, and because the film industry made the decision to adopt these self-imposed constraints, to win back lost revenue, it couldn't specifically rely on being able to offer customers an alternative to what they could get at home for free. After their decision to self-regulate, in 1948 the industry was ironically forced to abide by government intervention anyway when the Supreme Court ruled against them in United States versus Paramount Pictures, another landmark case in which the studios were forced to give up their control over ownership of movie theaters, which opened the door for foreign film distributors. New films from all over the world, which were made without adhering to the code, could now be exhibited in American theaters, and the major studios would not profit from their exhibition. Facing the loss of revenue due to the Supreme Court's decision, the studios kept the code alive, but also started backing filmmakers who included realistic scenarios in their stories. Playwright F. Hugh Herbert adapted his play, The Moon is Blue, in 1951, but after submitting the screenplay for a certificate of approval, Joseph Breen returned it unapproved with notes alerting Herbert and director Otto Preminger the screenplay violated the code with its, quote, light and gay treatment of the subject of illicit sex and seduction, unquote. After Herbert and Preminger submitted a revised version, it was again rejected because it displayed overall, quote, an unacceptably light attitude toward seduction, illicit sex, chastity, and virginity, unquote. After the second rejection, Preminger decided to finish making the film without the Breen office's approval. United Artists studio heads Arthur Krim and Robert Benjamin supported Preminger's decision, and eventually the film was finished and released in American theaters without a certificate. The film was a box office success, and though not a fatal blow for the code, it still set a precedent that American movies not fully approved by the powerful Breen office were commercially viable. That this was something the studios already knew but were too submissive to tell the Catholic Legion of Decency back in 1934 is another matter. stepped down from his position in 1954. In 1951, former RKO studio head Dory Sherry took over MGM from Louis B. Mayer, 
During Breen's tenure, Mayer had been one of his closest allies, as Breen's work helped realize Mayer's demand for depicting a well-scrubbed America. In Lion of Hollywood, Scott Amon's biography of Mayer, the longtime studio head laid out what he envisioned for his adopted home country. Quote, I am not going to make pictures for the sake of awards or for the critics. I want to make pictures for Americans and for all people to enjoy. When I send my pictures abroad, I want them to show America in the right light, and not that we are a nation chiefly of drunks, gangsters, and prostitutes." Unquote. Knowing that Mayer felt this way, and that he was arguably the most powerful studio head in Hollywood during his tenure, makes it obvious that the people running things weren't agonizing over standards and just presenting what they thought America needed to see. They also actively worked against progress of any kind by successfully portraying a society that never truly existed. Earlier, we talked about how after the code was initially planned and discussed in 1927, it still took an additional seven years and real backing by the studios for its regulations to become law. In 1951, the code remained officially in effect for all films produced by major studios in America. But after Preminger's victory, more films would be successfully released without a certificate, such as 1959's Some Like It Hot and Anatomy of a Murder, both of which featured plots whose subject matter was technically unmentionable according to the code. So despite the code's continued official authority, films made in America over the next few years would become increasingly daring, not only because of their inclusion of violence and at least acknowledgement of sexual situations like 1960's Psycho, but by questioning established institutions which the code still expressly forbid portraying, like 1962's The Manchurian Candidate. In 1966, Jack Valenti was appointed the new head of the MPA. Valenti was a World War II veteran and Harvard graduate who had previously been employed as the special assistant to President Lyndon Johnson. Valenti was in the motorcade in Dallas on November 22, 1963, and he can be seen in the famous photo of LBJ swearing in aboard Air Force One after Kennedy's assassination. Like Will Hayes, Valenti did not have a background in the arts. However, he favored change and more freedom for filmmakers, and he understood that for the film medium to stay relevant and keep pace with changing moods and social mores in American society, movies had to be able to reflect those changes. In 1968, Valenti proposed, then implemented, the first version of the movie rating system, consisting of the ratings G, M, R, and X. By 1972, the M rating was replaced by PG, and PG-13 would be added in 1984. Films were now submitted to the newly formed Ratings Board, which issued the film a rating based on its content. While filmmakers now enjoyed previously forbidden artistic freedom, the new rating system still presented problems. The X rating was to be reserved for films made exclusively for people over 16. However, the ratings themselves weren't trademarked, and the X was soon co-opted by the porn industry. In the 1970s, porn movies were shot on film and exhibited in theaters the same as any other, so because the X rating became associated with pornography, filmmakers now faced new challenges in trying to tailor their movies so that they wouldn't receive the dreaded X. The main reason the X rating was so undesirable for the studios was because most American theaters refused to screen such movies. For roughly 15 years, almost no movies made in America received the X rating, and it laid dormant until 1990 when, to resolve the issue, Valenti's MPA created the NC-17 rating. Like the original X, 
This rating was to be reserved for non-pornographic films made specifically for adults, and no one under 17 would be admitted even with a guardian. Movies released with the NC-17 rating could be distributed more easily than X-rated films, but even with this new respectability, by 1990, the most dominant movie theaters were corporate-owned chains, and these chains refused to screen films rated NC-17. Advertising restrictions were also placed on such movies, so many newspapers and TV networks would refuse to run ads for the movie. Home video was also now a major revenue stream for movie studios, and Blockbuster, the largest chain, refused to stock films rated NC-17. Which leads us to the other problem with the new rating system, which persists even today. At the end of the trailer for some upcoming films, audiences are alerted that, quote, this film is not yet rated, unquote. What this means is that the movie was submitted to the MPA for a rating, and the rating it received was deemed by the studio to be unsatisfactory. Before the movie's release, it must be recut and resubmitted to the MPA's appeal board to be considered for a less severe rating. After these resubmissions, NC-17 films become R's, and R-rated films become PG-13s. Because the film industry is a business, certain economic realities are always in play, and movies are often made and marketed with a target audience in mind. When that target audience is out of reach due to a movie's rating, the only way to get that desired rating is to cut out the offending scenes. It's difficult to know how often this next part still happens, but over the last 20 years when a movie was gutted to obtain the softer rating, after its theatrical run, the studio would then cynically generate additional revenues by releasing the original version of the film with the inappropriate sequences reinserted as the unrated special edition DVD. The film you weren't allowed to see in a theater can now be yours to own. Just as during the initial formation of the code in 1934, studio heads in the early 1990s had an opportunity to be progressive and to educate. They could have worked with their business partners in the theater chains and video outlets to find a way to make the NC-17 rating a useful tool in making pictures that were for adults. If money was the biggest concern, they could have reasoned with their shareholders, and after analyzing the possibilities, created a division that specialized in such films, acknowledging that while they wouldn't be the company's most substantial money makers, sophisticated movies made for adults was still a viable business opportunity. The first major NC-17 movie released in America was Philip Kaufman's Henry and June. While the reviews admittedly were mixed, the film was still engaging and did comparatively well, grossing $23 million against an $11.5 million budget. Bernardo Bertolucci's 2003 The Dreamers had been given the dreaded NC-17 rating and was released into art house and foreign theaters that would show it with the rating intact. The movie cost $15 million to make and took in nearly $27 million. In 2006, John Cameron Mitchell's NC-17 rated short bus made $7.5 million, more than tripling its $2 million budget. It's difficult to say if these titles are exceptions, because we don't have enough data to analyze. Since the NC-17 ratings creation in 1990, less than 100 films have been released with it. But even if the figures we've referenced here aren't Avatar-level revenues, there should be no such expectation, 
because these films are made for mature adults who want to be challenged. And even if the profit from these films don't reach the kind of gaudy numbers shareholders expect, it's still a 150-300% to profit, which shareholders should be able to live with. When Blockbuster was still in business and had influence, they and the theater chains feared activist boycotts resulting in lost revenue over the exhibition of NC-17-rated films. If the decision-makers at the studios possessed real leadership, they could have shown it by standing tall with their most valuable business associates and let the militants stage their protests and boycotts. If taking such a principled stand failed and mass firings at the studios ensued, the studio heads themselves wouldn't have suffered. They were senior officers at major American corporations, and even back then their phones would have blown up the next day with calls from executive search firms looking to move them into even higher paying jobs at another company. Whether in 1934 or 1990, when faced with outside threats, the people at the top of these companies forgot to show the same moxie and chutzpah that got them into these positions to begin with, and true progress still feels out of reach because of it. Today's movie landscape offers many additional avenues and platforms for filmmakers that weren't there 30 years ago, but efforts to police what we consume unfortunately remains. Ten years ago, it seemed inconceivable that book banning and satanic panic would make a return, but the right-wing culture war has somehow gotten even worse in 2023. There's no easy answer to these problems, but if you've listened to this show for this long, there's a good chance you want a solution as much as we do. And even though it's unlikely we'll see results in our lifetimes, it's still vitally important and worth it to work together now so that future generations will benefit from the effort. All around the water tank Waiting for a train This podcast starred Scott Charbonneau and David Lynn Miller. It was written by David Lynn Miller and produced by Scott Charbonneau. Thank you for listening, everybody. This was a lot of fun to research and to produce. If you want to know more about The Code, we've included a list of our sources in the notes, so follow the links in your podcast app to find where you can gather additional reading. Please let us know what you thought of the show via email at dudesonmovies at gmail.com or on any of our social medias. We'll have more of this kind of thing coming up in the future, too, so please stay tuned. Until then, I'm your dude Scott. I'm your dude Dave. And we'll see you next time. Above.